Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Thanks so much for joining us today, and thank you also for your big patience. It's been almost three weeks now since our last episode was published, and that's 100% on me. I've been traveling, attending my dad's 70th birthday celebrations, which were absolutely fantastic. Thank you for asking. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit different, um, much longer than most episodes for one, and that's because we're going to do a bit of a summary or compilation featuring highlights from some of our most popular episodes in the podcast to date. So this podcast has been live since late 2017, just over a year and a half now, and you've all given us plenty of love, as we can tell from the numbers, over 10,000 downloads to date, which is phenomenal. We really appreciate it and really happy that you're enjoying our content. Um, Hopefully this podcast is helping you make more informed decisions, exposes you to some insights which you may not have been aware of, and this is exactly what we're aiming for here. So what we've done is look at the most popular episodes by number of downloads and try to mash together the most important content in all of these episodes into a single longer form episode. And the purpose here is to enable anyone who doesn't want to go back and listen to all of the chit-chat intros, the off-topic rants, and get a more sort of a bottom-line type experience in one big episode, kind of the best of Japan real estate podcast, if you will, or at least the best of it up to this day. Now, the reason we're not doing this at the end or start of the year is that we also want to include the annual summary and projections episode, which is normally published in late January or early February. So here it is, the best of 2017, 18, and just a little bit of early 2019. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to start from the very beginning, our first ever episode, which was really an introduction to Japan's property market and what exactly about it is attractive to investors worldwide. Here it is. Perfect. Japan is not yet another Asian country. Its character is unique in many, many ways. And the character of its residents is probably a lot more similar to Northern Europeans, say Germans, Swiss or Austrians, than it is to the rest of their Asian neighbors. The Japanese are notoriously straight and as by the book as one can be. They are extremely polite, proper manners oriented. The business environment is strictly regulated and there is very little, if any, under-the-table dealings as you'd find in many other countries. Uh, Corruption, while it does exist, is very, very rare here, and the chances of a foreign investor being swindled or lied to or taken advantage of are very, very close to none. Now, before we delve more deeply into the main attractions of the Japanese market, um, just a few words about the country and its economy. Japan uh, is not one of the world's biggest countries by population size, It's currently at about 127 million or so, but it is the world's third largest economy by nominal GDP, that's gross domestic product. So second only to the USA and China, and slightly in the lead over the next entry in the list, which is Germany. It's also, as I've mentioned earlier, the world's second biggest property investment market by transaction volumes. So again, second only to the USA and closely competing with the UK, which is currently third place in that list. So just to briefly cover the pros and cons of investing in real estate property here. Um, First and foremost, affordability. Uh, Japan, as some of you may know, has been in deflation for over two decades, in between the early 90s to 2012, when that cycle bottomed out. 
So while the image of expensive Japan and specifically expensive Tokyo was true back in the 80s, and while that image has persisted to some degree, property prices have actually gone down to less than half of what they were at the peak of that last bubble. 2012 to 2016 or so, we've seen that trend reverse. So property prices are now just over a half or around 60% of what they were at their 90s peak, but they are still very, very affordable. So to talk some numbers, there are large cities in Japan with a population of say two or three million people where you can still get properties at around two million Japanese yen which in today's terms is just under 18,000 US dollars. That's 18,18. The price will get you a studio or a one-bedroom apartment in a good part of the city, in most cases with a tenant already in place so that you start making money on it from day one. Now, naturally, this affordability translates directly into diversity and into an ability to hedge your investment, which is just not possible in other countries. So if we take some of the world's most popular property investment destinations, let's say places like Australia, Canada, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, for the price of just one property in one of those hotspots, you'll most likely be able to buy anywhere between 8 to 15 properties here in Japan. What this means is that not only can you spread out your investment over all sorts of socio-economic geographic regions, um, capital growth oriented spots or high yield oriented locations, etc. But you're also much better protected from loss of income. Since if you've purchased one or two properties in one of those expensive places, you stand to lose 50 or 100% of your income when a tenant moves out. In fact, you're probably slipping into loss territory since there are still building fees, insurance premiums, etc. that need to be paid even when the property is vacant. Whereas if you've invested in 8 or 10 or 12 properties with those same funds, you're only going to be down 12 or 10 or 8% from your income stream if and when a tenant moves out on you, which is obviously a much better position to be in. Another big advantage of buying real estate property investments in Japan, which is also due to those two decades of price drops, is the rental returns. Since property purchase prices are far more volatile than rent prices, simply because it takes far longer for macroeconomic changes to trickle down to the micro level of salaries and rents. As a result, the rental return here is very high. If we're talking about net pre-tax, meaning including all of your purchase and annual running costs, but not including annual taxes and unknowns like vacancies or maintenance, repairs, renovations, etc., you can still get returns as high as 9 or 10% net pre-tax in many large cities around the country. So again, compared with some of those investment hotspots like Canada or Australia, where you'd make, say, 2 or 3 or 4% net pre-tax at most on your rental income, and then you'd have to wait for capital growth to occur, here you can get 6, 7, 8, even 9% net pre-tax returns, and then any capital growth becomes just a bonus or icing on the cake. And while capital growth profits can only be realized if you sell or refinance a property, Rental returns are like a paycheck, they're money in the bank, so they're far more regular, far more stable than all of those speculative capital growth plays. Last, but certainly not least, one of the biggest, if not the biggest attraction of Japan's property market is the Japanese people themselves. As we slightly touched upon earlier, the Japanese are very strict and proper in everything that they do. And this applies to tenants and professional services companies as well. 
Japanese tenants are docile as hell. They would never damage a rental property intentionally, very rarely by accident. They'd never have a, a drug lab in the property or invite friends and families to bunk in with them illegally. They almost always pay on time. They tend to stand, stay very long time in one place. The average for studio and one-bedroom units, meaning singles properties, is about four and a half years in most places. Families stay even longer than that, so that 10, 15, even 20-year tenancies are not uncommon here at all. Uh, there's almost no need for forced evictions. If a tenant has payment issues, they'll most likely leave of their own accord. And even if you do have to kick them out, this usually amounts to just sending them a letter asking them to vacate the premises, and that's it, they're gone. Okay, there you go. Affordability, high rental yields, and most importantly, a very comfortable, hassle-free and easy-to-handle business environment. These are all the main reasons that make Japan's property investment market so popular worldwide. Now, your next favorite episode was our interview with Sadaisu Ito, a Tokyo-based accountant who talked to us about the pros and cons of investing as individuals as opposed to setting up a company or purchasing investment property under an existing company. Here are some highlights from our conversation with Sadasan of Sadiwell Accounting. Tax rate for the individual, like real estate investment, is not really high. You know, the biggest difference between the individual and the corporate is for the individual, the tax rate is, you know, we adopt the progressive taxation system. So the lowest tax rate is only 5%, but the highest tax rate is 45%. On the other hand, for the corporation, basically tax rate is flat, uh, is fixed at 34 percent. I mean, for if your corporate taxable income is less than, you know, uh, I think uh, 70,000 uh, US dollars around, uh, you know, tax uh, effective tax rate will be around, uh, you know, 23 percent. But basically, the corporate tax rate is fixed at 34%. So that means, you know, if your revenues and incomes from the real estate increases, eventually individual income tax rate will exceed the corporate tax rate. That then, you know, so approximately, uh, you know, if you are making, uh, let's say, But uh, worth three worth three hundred fifty thousand U.S. dollars, if taxable income is exceeding that amount, I think you know the corporate will have uh, more advantage compared to the individual in terms of the income tax. The other you know advantage of uh, doing investment through the Japanese company is you know the Japanese company, I mean corporate, can carry for the loss for up to nine years. On the other hand, the individual can carry for the loss only for the next three years. So that means, you know, usually when you start investment, uh, it kind of make, it's kind of difficult to make a, the profit from the first year because you have to make a lot of the investment and need to find a tenant. So, but in such cases, you make a loss at the first year, but you can carry for the loss to the next nine years if you incorporate and offset the loss with the future income to save your tax. Uh, basically, that's the biggest you know, advantage uh, for, for the corporation. I see. 
Um, any, any other advantages there? Anything to do with expenses that you can maybe claim? Uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, for the expenses, you know, uh, well, compared to the individual, I think that the corporate can recognize more expenses uh, than the individual. For example, if you own the property just by yourself, uh, you can't pay salary to, to yourself. Well, you know, there's a way to pay the salary to your wife if your wife is actually working for the operation of the real estate investment, but that's limited only to your wife. But on the other hand, if you are, you know, corporate, uh, you can receive the salary uh, from your companies as the directors. And also, if your families or relatives are supporting uh, the companies, uh, you can your company can pay the salary for for yourself and uh, your families. So, and the salary from the companies to the individual uh, is regarded as expense of the companies. So, you know, I would say that company has the expenses for the companies are, you know. Uh, that the more expenses the company can recognize compared to, to the individual. That's another advantage of uh, establishing a company. I see. So it, it's really a matter of how big your income or your projected income is going to be and how much tax you're going to be pay on it, paying on it as yes. an individual opposed yeah. to a company. And also whether you've got any unusual expenses that you may be able to claim as deductions. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Yes, basically that, that it, it's, and uh, well, the biggest, uh, you know, the point you have to consider is your, your profit, scale of the profit. Right. So, and obviously, I mean, everyone's circumstances are different. So it's best to consult with uh, Sadaisu-san himself or, or any professional certified accountant here in Japan and also in our country of residence uh, because there are some issues um, regarding uh, double taxation, uh, tax treaties, whatever your income level is in your country of residence in case you're not living here. So these all will help you determine the best course of action in your particular case. Now, Sarasan, aside from everything that you've just explained, are there any other advantages for property investors in setting up a, a local Japanese company or, or in the case of non-residents, maybe a, a Japanese branch or a subsidiary of a foreign corporation? What are the main differences between all of these structures? Mm, okay, I see. Well, you know... Well, doing an investment as a foreigner, uh, as an individual, uh, you get some advantage because uh, you do not have to pay the local uh, inhabitant tax. Because for the individual, if you do not have the residency in Japan, uh, you you know uh, you are exempted from the local inhabitant tax. And local inhabitant tax rate for the individual is quite high. It's it's a ten percent of your taxable income. So I just mentioned that you know income tax rate lowest rate is five percent. But if you are living in Japan, you have to make a uh, you have to pay the additional ten percent for the inhabitant tax. So that means the lowest tax rate for the individual is fifteen percent, and the highest is fifty five percent. I mean, I think fifty five percent is quite high. Very high, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, also for the corporate, you know, if you establish the corporate, that is regarded as a Japanese resident. I mean, the, if you register the company in Japan, so that's a Japanese company. So, of course, you have to pay the inhabitant tax uh, in Japan. There's the inhabitant tax for the corporate, too. 
And if you register the branch, it's the same. It's, it's a Japanese entity, so you know, subject to the local taxes too. And uh, well, I want to a little bit explain you about the, the difference between the branch and uh, the companies. You know, uh, there is a well uh, three ways to uh, well start investment in Japan. Well, the first one is you know well purchase the property as an individual. And the other one is you establish a subsidiary companies in Japan, or you establish a branch. Uh, that, that's Japan. a subsidiary or branch of a foreign company which establishes an office in Japan, yes? Yes, yes, okay. correct. Yes, subsidiary of the foreign companies. Or, well, you know, was like uh, you can, it doesn't have to be a subsidiary of the foreign company. It's... Well, you as an individual establish a company in Japan and you are shareholders uh, living in overseas and have a Japanese company in Japan, that's possible too. And taxation are same for, for, uh, for both cases. Okay. And the, the other one, the other case is you establish a branch of the foreign head, foreign company in Japan. So the, so basically there is a, you know, well, you can establish a subsidiary or you can uh, establish a branch in Japan. And, uh, you know, uh, this is something different from the, the tax, but the biggest difference uh, between the subsidiary and the branch is about the uh, uh, legal liabilities uh, for the Japan, uh, Japanese, Japanese entities. Well, if it's a branch, the branch and the head office are regarded is treated as the same legal entities. So let's say you know if well, somebody sues the Japanese branch and the Japanese branch owe the liabilities to the others, you know foreign uh, head office has the obligation for these liabilities. The foreign you know head office owes unlimited liability for the Japanese branch because they are same entities. On the other hand, uh, if it's a subsidiary, subsidiary company and parent company or individual in overseas are regarded as the different entities. So the risk doesn't, you know, go to the foreign investors if you establish a subsidiary companies. If the subsidiary company go bankrupt, that's it. You know, no more damages for that. And uh, the other differences uh, between the subsidiary and the branch from the tax point of view. Well, as I said, the branch and the head office are same legal entities. So if you are making the loss in the Japanese branch and if you are making the profit in the foreign head office, you know, you can offset the loss in Japan branch and profit in the foreign head office. Right. So we've covered the various advantages and disadvantages of individual ownership versus corporate ownership of investment properties in Japan. And of course, you also need to take into account the setup and upkeep costs of your company as far as legal fees, staffing and office space goes, etc. And like mentioned in the episode, the best thing to do is to consult with your accountant both in Japan and in your country of residence if you're not actually living here. So next in line, investment strategy. Again, one of our most popular episodes to date. And in this episode, we try to define a general guideline to choosing our investments and of course, keeping them as lucrative and stable as possible. Here goes. Okay, so we're going to be targeting monthly cash flow as opposed to potential capital gains. 
and we're going to make sure that we're staying liquid whenever possible and that we're remitting our foreign exchange reserves across to and from Japan whenever rates justify and not because we need the money here or there. The third factor we want to consider, which is another one of the main advantages of these uh, 25 odd years of deflation, is that properties in Japan are now very, very affordable. So, yes, a trendy penthouse in central Tokyo can cost a million dollars or more, but these large and newish properties generate very little cash flow in any case, so they don't really sit well with our first rule. Add to that the fact that the population is declining and is very rapidly aging, and that means that the biggest tenant base in Japan is composed of singles, many of them elderly, and you're starting to see that the easiest property to populate, which also happens to be the highest yielding property class in monthly return terms, is smaller studio or single bedroom apartments. Now, to further maximize that monthly return, we'll want to hit the sweet spot between too old, which means a lot of renovations and repairs on a regular basis, but we also want to avoid too new, which means lower returns and quicker depreciation. Now, tax depreciation lifespans for uh, reinforced concrete blocks in Japan, which is most of these older apartment buildings, is 47 years. So the best purchase criteria age-wise is somewhere between 1982, which is also when the latest uh, earthquake-resistant building standards for these structures were introduced, by the way, and all the way up to about 2000 or so, which is when general floor plans and layouts started becoming wider, more spacey, more modern, and as a result of that are also more expensive and generate less returns percentage-wise. Now, you will occasionally see uh, some very well-maintained older buildings, and these older buildings can be partly retrofitted uh, as far as earthquake-resistant standards are involved too. So this rule isn't set in stone, but it is probably a good guideline. So 1982 to 2000, and we'll obviously revise and revisit that as the years progress. These smaller, older apartments are also very affordable. And these days they go for anywhere between 2 million Japanese yen, which is just under 20,000 US dollars at current rates, and 10 million yen, which is about 85,000 US dollars. That's another upside of the deflationary cycle, and it also allows us to diversify and hedge funds over several assets, in several geographic locations, and over different cities, which also means different industries, different socioeconomic profiles. And even if we purchase one building, meaning all of our units are in the same place, we've still got several of those units, which means several different tenants and income streams. Somebody moves out, you've still got a large portion of your income stream in play, as opposed to putting the entire money into a newer, bigger, more expensive apartment or house, which means a tenant moves out and we're down to zero income. So to summarize, this is our strategy. Generally speaking, high cash flow yielding assets in stable second tier metropolitan centers, so not central Tokyo, not central Osaka, but we do want these cities to have stable tenant bases and stable local economies. We want to keep liquid cash in both our country of residence and Japan. And we want to focus on smaller, older and cheaper apartments, but not too old that can host singles or childless couples in all ages, and these allow us to diversify and hedge our portfolio as much as possible. 
There you have it, a clear and easy to follow investment strategy tailored specifically to Japan's economic environment, which emphasizes rental yields, foreign exchange management, and Japan's unique demographic characteristics. Next in line is portfolio management. This very popular episode dealt mainly with choosing and working with property managers, how to choose them and work with them, and also a bit with the intricacies of asset management. So here we go, all about Japanese real estate property portfolio management. Now here in Japan, most of the properties that you're going to be purchasing will already have a property manager in place, not necessarily the one that you want to work with, especially if you're purchasing a tenanted property. Now, the quality and professionalism of these managers can vary, but the general rule is that being Japanese, they're normally quite honest, quite transparent, but unfortunately not very proactive. So you'll almost always need to gently, um, sometimes not so gently, prod them, poke them, guide them, chase them up to get things done, especially if you want things done your way, which may be different from what they're used to. Japanese property managers tend to be quite good at responding to inquiries, providing reports, not all that good at offering solutions or taking initiative as far as action is required. And since Japanese landlords as well are usually Japanese, they tend to leave these PMs to their own devices, and the result, unfortunately, is often chronically vacant properties, which are doing nothing but burdening the portfolio with expenses, reducing profitability, definitely something that we want to avoid with our portfolios. So firstly, here are a few tips to dealing with these property managers. First and foremost, centralization is key. If you're planning to own more than one property in any particular area, you really want to try and locate, then form a relationship with local property managers that you can trust with all of your properties in that area for a few main reasons. First of all, bank fees can be quite steep in Japan. One simple monthly rent deposit into your account can cost anywhere between 100 to 800 Japanese yen. That's just under one to just over seven US dollars, depending on which bank you and the PM are using. Now, if your rent deposit is, say, for a smaller, cheaper studio unit, which might be generating something as low as, say, 200 US dollars in net monthly returns, a $7 bank fee obviously reduces your income significantly. So, if you're using the same property manager for all of your properties in one particular area, they can remit all of the income streams in one bulk remittance, and you just pay the one fee on that. Another reason to try and work with the same one is... A property manager who manages more than one property um, for a client naturally works harder and better since they've got a lot more to lose if you end up taking your business elsewhere. And also after a while working with you, they'll learn how you do things. So they'll hopefully apply the same practices to all of the properties that they manage for you. For example, um, they'll know that you don't automatically accept overpriced maintenance and repair quotes. So they'll usually try to get a second quote if that seems to be the case or they'll know that you like to inspect a property a week before a tenant vacates it and not just on the day of, of vacancy to give the tenant a chance to repair or to get the money needed for repairing anything which is their responsibility, so on and so forth. Um, proactive practices, which by the way are definitely not common practice for Japanese property managers as a rule. It's something that you'll need to instruct them to do and for them to get used to doing it can take some time. So. Being able to teach a single PM the right way or your preferred way to do things and then have them apply it to all of the properties that they manage for you is obviously a big time and expense saver um, from your perspective. 
Second thing to consider about um, property management is, of course, the price that you're going to be charged for it. Normally, PMs can charge anywhere between 2 to 5% of the gross rental income when the property is tenanted, and they don't charge anything when it's vacant. Once, however, they do find a new tenant, they will charge the first month of gross rental income as their advertising and placement fee. But in tough spots, if they have to share the listing with other PMs, if they have to offer one month of free rent to potential tenants, uh, etc., the uh, total expense can be increased to two, three, even four months um, of the gross rental income. This usually happens in cases where either the rent you want to receive is higher than the comparable average for similar properties in this particular area. Could happen during low move-in season when there's a lot of competition, not that much demand. Um, for example, winter, if you're uh, dealing with colder parts of the country or middle of the semester in properties that are located uh, next to university campus and so forth. The average tenancy in Japan tends to be longer than in many, many other countries. Um, for a single person's typical studio one-bedroom unit, it's usually about four and a half, between four to five years. Longer than that for family-sized properties. So paying a higher move-in fee in these cases does make sense, even furnishing a unit to attract uh, more potential tenants or higher rents. All of these um, solutions are usually cost-efficient. And since, as we mentioned time and time again, the Japanese do tend to be honest, they're not too greedy in their business dealings. So if a local PM you know and trust recommend any of these practices um, and increased costs to try and secure a tenant quickly and more efficiently, usually a good idea to listen to them, take their advice. The property management companies that charge less um, as far as gross rental income is concerned, say 2%, they'll usually also charge higher move-in advertisement and placement fees. And they're generally not as good as the ones which charge higher monthly fees since they're more focused on, the, the cheaper ones are more focused on getting these move-in fees as opposed to the uh, relatively low monthly fees that they charge. So as a result, they don't screen tenants all that well. They don't really bother much with serious management, proper communication with landlords, etc. So you want to stick to the um, mid-range um, gross uh, gross rental percentage um, charges. Larger cities naturally have more property management companies to choose from, so it's more likely that you'll be able to find a good one for 4 or 5%. It's easier to negotiate the fee from 5 to 4% or from 4 to 3% if you've got more than one property that these guys will be managing for you. On the higher range, you'll find some companies that boast of national coverage, um, various levels of service, and these guys charge 7, 8, even 10% of the gross rental income um, for their services. But there's really no real advantage to working with them from our experience, since each of these regional offices will have different staff and different practice, um, different practices, different levels of performance in any case. So probably best to source smaller, mid-range, more local PMs instead. And one last thing about property management, there are some alternative tenant databases to explore in case a property becomes vacant at a bad time and it's difficult to find a normal tenant. These databases can be things like um, government-supported welfare recipients, which you can get access to from City Hall, um, foreign students, which you can get access to from local schools and universities. Local property managers who are familiar with um, potential tenant population in their areas will be able to provide you with advice and access to these tenant databases as well. 
Um, but they're not automatically going to do that since many of the Japanese landlords prefer not to deal with these um, types of tenants. So it's worth discussing these options with them in advance if possible. So once you're done with your um, property management, the second thing to put in place is your landlord insurance policy. If you're purchasing individual units in a managed condo block, you only need to cover the interior of the unit. If you've purchased a house or a building, you also want to cover some of the exterior for fire and other natural disasters. Interior coverage is quite cheap in Japan, usually comes up to just a few dollars for every 20 or 30 square meters. Again, best to work with the same insurance company for all properties under management, simply for ease of communication and more attractive pricing. Next building block is our building management. If you own individual units in condo blocks, the owner's co-op will have appointed a building management company and you'll need to communicate with them once you become the owner. Make sure you sign up for automatic withdrawal of building fees, which is a lot cheaper than paying those uh, pricey bank fees that we've mentioned. In most cases, it's going to be um, free of bank charges if you sign up for automatic withdrawals. And make sure you review the annual meeting summaries and the periodical notices that they send your way, since you may be asked to vote on some decisions which may end up costing you money, um, such as renovations, repairs to the building exterior, um, increases in, um, in monthly fees in order to cover these repairs or to um, cover a depleted sink fund pool. In some buildings, where there are no individual meters for each unit. There are also monthly water or heating fees, communal monthly water or heating fees that are charged by the building management company. Your tenant will normally be paying these fees on their own, either directly to the management company or through the rent, in which case you'll be paying it on their behalf. The building management company may ask you to pay these fees even when the unit is vacant. Now, if these fees are for um, common areas, heating or water usage, one thing, fair enough, but if they ask you to pay an individual unit's communal water or communal heating fee, even when it's vacant and it's not being heated or uh, water is not being used, don't be shy to argue the point. They'll more often than not back down. Good stuff. Again, one of the most popular, if not the most popular episodes to date, Portfolio Management. Now, one of the questions we get asked most frequently has to do with Japan's population, or rather depopulation and the related subject of old abandoned homes. And so we went ahead and addressed this topic, and that episode as well has proven to be super popular with listeners. It is true that Japan's population is in fast decline, and the reasons for that are the subject of much debate. Some believe it's due to a social problem, which stems from the fact that the Japanese are quite socially awkward and shy, and as a result, many of them don't form relationships or get married, which obviously leads to diminishing birth rates. Another reason that's been quoted a fair bit is the lack of female life satisfaction and more specifically relationship satisfaction. Japan is a very traditional society in Western terms, but isn't shut off from the rest of the world, nor does it um, legally or practically limit women's rights. So women who aren't satisfied with their prospects as mothers or baby making machines are in fact able to choose not to be in relationships or have babies, which many of them actually do. Another, another reason could be the cost of living, which is quite high in comparison with wages, uh, which also leads to couples making a conscious choice of limiting their family size. Um, overwork, particularly for men, also plays a huge part. And lastly, the deep-rooted fear of assimilation, which manifests in strict immigration policies. 
and that in turn prevents any population growth as a result of immigration. So compounded factors here all leading to the bottom line, which again is that Japan's population is in rapid decline. Extinction, however, is a big word. And even that particular research that we've mentioned earlier is talking about potential extinction by the year 3000. Once more, the year 3000. Now, do you assume that nothing in the social, economical, and demographic characteristics of any society will change in the course of 1000 years is, to put it mildly, quite a ridiculous assumption. All we need to do is... Um, Go back and look at some predictions from 1,000 years ago, um, as one commentator put it, and see how accurate assumptions made in the year 1,018 turned out to be, uh, to realize how unreliable this type of projection is probably destined to be. So it is true that the population here is in a downwards trend, and it's also true that this, but not only this, and we'll get to that in a moment, does lead to an increasing number of abandoned or vacant family homes, not only the countryside and rural areas, but even in major cities such as Tokyo and Osaka. However, and that's a big however, this isn't the only reason for the large number of abandoned properties. The second reason is the change in mindset that Japanese society has gone through as it became more modernized. In the past, in fact, right up until the late 70s, the typical scenario um, for families here in Japan was large families, with three or even four generations all living together under the same roof in a large house in the suburbs of big cities or in the countryside. Young people will leave their homes and move to the big city to find work and a life partner and then move back, typically with men taking their wives to live with their now elderly parents in the old family home. Now, as Japanese society became more modernized, young people prefer to stay in the city or close enough to it to make commuting and life more convenient. Furthermore, Japanese women refused and are still refusing to take on the roles of modern-day servants to their husbands' families, and the move towards a more granular family unit of mother, father, and a small number of children made condominium life, or mansion life as it's called here, far more attractive to the vast majority of people. That, coupled with the high cost of demolition and removal of old homes anywhere in the country, has led to many of these old family homes being left to slowly rot away as parents pass away and as their daughters and sons continue their lives in the centers of larger metropolitan centers. Official popular published residential statistics in Japan, however, don't actually distinguish in most cases between condominiums or houses, nor do they easily distinguish between older or newer residences. And so when added up, the numbers do paint a far grimmer picture than reality portrays of an ever-increasing number of abandoned residences all over the country. The government, by the way, is now trying to tackle this problem by levying higher taxes on old homes left unoccupied, and also by partly subsidizing uh, the cost of demolition and removal of these residences in a hope to reinvigorate potential rebuilds and reutilization re of older land plots. But this has only been announced and enacted in the last couple of years, so it'll most likely take at least a few more years before any real progress can be measured, in this regard at least. As far as property prices go, however, this really doesn't have any effect, or at least doesn't have any effect on the types of properties that are popular for investment or even for residential living purposes, which again these days are either condominium flats or newly built houses in central and suburban areas of big cities. 
These properties are still trending upwards when the economy is growing and will most likely continue to do so for decades to come since the depopulation of more rural areas just means population growth in larger metropolitan areas, which is where people move to when their old villages or townships die out, which is what we're experiencing in Japan these days. The upside, though, from an investor's point of view is that these old houses and land parcels in outlying rural or semi-rural areas are very affordable, as opposed to properties in bigger cities. And for anyone considering buying a property for their own personal use or for short-term stay purposes, um, such as a guest house or leased holiday home, there are unbelievably cheap bargains to be had all over the country on these old houses, which many people take advantage of. For more hands-off investors, though, who are focused on easy long-term rental leases, condominiums or offices in city centers or convenient areas are the more popular asset class. And as far as residential properties go, the fact that many Japanese these days remain single for life means that one or two bedroom apartments are in most cases the ones most easy to populate when they become vacant. Okay, so we've covered the topic of abandoned homes, towns, and rural areas. The question is then, where do we buy? Well, we covered that topic as well in another very popular episode, which discussed some of Japan's biggest and most popular investment destinations. Here it is now, where to invest. First and foremost, um, Tokyo and Osaka. As we mentioned here when we did our Kyoto deal analysis a few episodes back, Tokyo and Osaka are the most popular investment destinations for international investors. The only places that most international banks will provide investment loans for. And as a result, competition there is quite fierce and central areas in those cities are more than a bit overpriced for both new and secondhand properties. And that naturally leads to lower yields. Now, this may be attractive if you're financing your purchase, since your cash on cash return, meaning the amount that you'll get monthly compared with the amount of cash that you actually had to fork out of pocket for the purchase, will still be reasonable. But if you're buying cash, like most non-resident foreigners tend to, buying in Tokyo or Osaka will be a very speculative investment with very small returns. Another problem there is that the high price of these properties harms your diversity. So you have far less of an ability to hedge your investments since the same budget will get you less properties, which means less income streams and less diversity across locations, socioeconomic profiles, which you will be able to get if you stick to other locations. On the upside, if and when prices do go up in Japan, which again is far from given, Tokyo and Osaka tend to appreciate more. If you do want to try and aim for potential growth, but you don't want to sacrifice your cash flow or your monthly returns, it's probably better to target Fukuoka City, which again, we've covered here in the past. It's the biggest city in Western Japan, famous for being Japan's uh, startup hub, very popular with East Asian uh, tourists and business people. And it has been rising in prices almost as sharply as Tokyo in recent years. But in Fukuoka, those prices starting point was a lot lower than Tokyo and Osaka. So rental returns there are still substantially higher, although that gap is shrinking. Another overpriced and overhyped location is Niseko, which is probably Japan's most internationally famous ski resort town. Located in Hokkaido, it first became popular with Australian winter sport enthusiasts about a decade ago. 
and now it's very well known for other nationalities as well. Beautiful place, very foreigner friendly, but also very, very expensive to buy in. Normal lease returns there, long-term leases, are also very low as a result. But the advantage of Niseko is that foreigners are very well integrated into the local scene there, including the local municipality, which makes it far more accessible to non-Japanese speakers. And perhaps most importantly, you can get more creative there as far as short-term rentals are concerned, which is a big plus, considering that the rest of the country, as we've heard here um, in the past from Paul Feinberg, is actually trending the other way and is becoming stricter as far as building and resort management companies are concerned, as well as legislation. In Niseko, where there are many foreign homeowners who only use their properties once or twice a year, it's far easier to lease your property to short-stay holiday makers, and that does make for higher returns, even on pricier properties. Also up in Hokkaido is Sapporo City, one of Japan's bigger metropolitan centers with a population of just under 2 million people. Sapporo is actually one of the cheapest and highest yielding locations in Japan, as far as rental income is concerned, because prices there took a significant hit after the 311 tsunami and the subsequent Fukushima nuclear spillage. Um, because tourism, which is one of the city's main economic drivers, almost completely ceased. The tourists are now back, but prices are still very affordable, and because rents haven't dropped nearly as sharply, this margin makes for very attractive deals cash flow-wise. Now, Sapporo isn't really pegged for growth, price-wise or population-wise, but returns there are very good, and considering the size of the city and the diversity of its economy, it ticks a lot of the boxes for many investors. Unique caveats to Sapporo are that due to the cold winters up there, there's about half of the year which is quite hard for repopulating vacant units, since tenants don't tend to move around much between October and April, which are the snowy months. Also, the city is quite um, old school in its character, which means that tenancies do tend to be longer than in other locations. People don't move around as much, but so are vacancies. The average tenant age also tends to be older which can mean you might experience an occasional death in a property. Fortunately, though, insurance coverage uh, for this sort of unfortunate event is quite cheap in Japan, only about 1,500 Japanese yen or 13 or so US dollars per year. So nothing unmanageable. Another unique aspect of Sapporo is that due to the large space that the city occupies, properties tend to be bigger there. So while in most other places around the country, High-yielding properties would be one or two bedrooms at most. In Sapporo, it's not uncommon to find larger properties, say three, four, or even five bedrooms, that are still yielding good returns percentage-wise. And that size normally means family tenants as opposed to singles or couples, which again translates into longer tenancies. On the downside, though, these larger properties do require more expensive renovations and repairs between vacancies, as opposed to a studio or one-bedroom unit, which is quite cheap to prepare for the next tenant. Another popular large city is Yokohama, which is Japan's second biggest city, stone's throw away from Tokyo. It's a central area, uh, the central area of Yokohama, which is um, quite expensive on, and low on returns, is quite small, and the rest of the city can still be more affordable and provide higher returns than Tokyo itself. But deals um, in Yokohama are few and far between. 
Kawasaki, which lies kind of between Tokyo and Yokohama, is smaller, only about one and a half million population-wise and rising. Also one of Japan's favorite residential cities. Uh, is still more reasonably priced than both Tokyo and Yokohama. So if you find a good deal there, don't think twice, grab it. Again, deals are few and far between, unfortunately. Kyoto, which we've covered here in the past, and Nagoya are the last two big cities we'll discuss today. Kyoto, as we've mentioned uh, in our deal analysis episode, is Japan's top international tourism destination alongside Tokyo and hasn't gone up in price uh, as sharply as some of the other cities have. So still good deals to be had there occasionally. Nagoya, which is one of Japan's biggest industrial centers, also has good deals on paper, but the population there does tend to be a bit rougher around the edges due to the industrial and manufacturing aspect of the place. So you can expect slightly higher tenant turnover, occasionally some payment issues. This is generally not a big problem in Japan. And as we've mentioned in our last episode, when we discussed uh, tenant screening and securities, the most you're likely to have to do is just ask someone to move out if they chronically fail to pay the rent. But still, as far as Japan goes, there are more of these cases in Nagoya compared with most other cities. That's probably it as far as larger cities and metropolitan centers are concerned. Again, there are also plenty of small towns and cities that can make very good investment destinations as long as you're not too concerned about potential capital growth, which probably shouldn't be your primary criteria in Japan anyway. Places like Kumamoto, Kobe, Chiba, Kurume, Nagasaki, and some of the satellite cities and bedroom communities um, around Tokyo and Yokohama. But we'll get to those in another episode sometimes in the future. There we go, pretty comprehensive list of popular investment destinations, each with their unique advantages, disadvantages, and caveats. Now, the next topic on everyone's mind, particularly since mid-2018, has been Airbnb, or more generally, the short-term stay market. Now, the government here in Japan has put out a new legislative framework that sought to regulate this particular industry, with some severe restrictions and limitations coming into play that threw a serious wrench into a lot of people's money-making plans. Here are the highlights from the episode discussing this topic, which was also one of our most popular ones. Well, firstly, and perhaps most importantly, the new law allows local municipalities to regulate short-term stay in their areas on their own terms. This means that, in effect, in a country that avoids confrontation at all costs as a rule, and where the fear of change or anything different is very much embedded into the national psyche, it's quite likely that the vast majority of local municipalities will make life very difficult for short-term stay operators, and they might ban the practice altogether. The reason behind this is that most local residents in Japan try to avoid contact with anyone out of their immediate circle as a rule, let alone someone as frightening and alien as, as foreign tourists. And foreign tourists do tend to make up a large percentage of the short-term stay guest clientele naturally. Add to that the inconvenience that sometimes come with these guests. They don't always follow the rubbish disposal rules to the letter. They can be noisier than your typical Japanese neighbor. Um, they could go in and out of properties at late hours of the night and so forth. So the prospects for short-term stay operators isn't great to say the least. Local municipalities and neighborhood associations would want to avoid these conflicts with guests, with landlords, or with other neighbors at all costs. 
and they would most likely petition their local municipalities if they haven't done so already to simply ban the practice whenever possible. There could be exceptions to this rule, so places that depend on tourism for survival, such as the ski slopes of Niseko in Hokkaido, which also have a large percentage of uh, foreigner management in uh, City Hall and other local businesses, uh, maybe even Sapporo City itself, for which tourism is one of the main industries. But generally, it's expected that the vast majority of local municipalities will place severe restrictions on the practice, as indeed quite a few of them have already announced. So this is going to happen. Secondly, the new legislation has placed a nationwide cap on the number of days a property can be leased out short-term annually. 180 days, or half the year, this will also cut down on operators' income significantly, and many of the professional companies and landlords who have made a full-time business of short-term leasing have already abandoned their business model as a result. Other more reasonable sections of the new law um, require operators to register with local government offices to conduct periodical fire safety checks, as well as undergo mental health checks. So far, fair enough, as none of us would want to stay in places that can't comply with these simple requirements in any case, uh, we would hope. Another existing restriction that has already been a thorn in the side of many operators, as we have discussed here previously, was for owners of apartments in co-owned buildings. In these cases, building management of, or the owner's co-op was always free to disallow short-term leases in any case, which most of them have done, um, which anyway made the practice impossible unless the landlords own the entire structure, such as a house or an entire apartment building. On the upside, the government, which does recognize Japan's lack of affordable accommodation options, especially in Tokyo, and especially in light of the up-and-coming 2020 Olympics, has made it easier for owners of houses and buildings to apply for a hotel license back in 2016 by relaxing some of the requirements, such as a need for a reception desk. And thereby, they've made it clear to any operators who do want to comply with legislation on a larger scale and who can comply with the checks and the regulations required of serious accommodation business owners that they're welcome to do so. So in consideration of everything we've mentioned so far, and assuming that we don't have a property that would qualify as a hotel, which by the way, doesn't have to be that big. The legislation for hotels starts at only five guest rooms to accommodate the more traditional inns and the guest houses culture that Japan is so famous for. But assuming we only have a smaller house or apartment, and we want to try to make a little bit more than just your standard long-term tenancy profit, what can we do? Well, fortunately, there is a very large market in Japan for medium-term tenancies, or more specifically, tenancies that are a month or longer, but shorter than a standard tenancy lease, which normally starts at at least one year. And this type of operation is called monthly mansion, and the people who use these services are normally longer holiday makers who are interested in renting out a place for a longer period of time, people who are in town on business for one reason or another, but for a limited project of up to a few months, or people who have just moved to a new city, are not too familiar with it just yet, um, cannot maybe get the guarantees required for a longer term lease, or simply just don't have the time or don't want to find a place, but they need furniture, appliances, and so forth. All of these types will happily pay higher fees than standard tenants, but they will require that furniture, appliances, and they'll also need an internet connection. Um, also, they'll need to be in close proximity to convenient public transport in most cases. The more central, the better. 
And as far as holiday uh, makers are concerned, there might also be demand, depending on location, for more resort-type areas near a beach or countryside, a bit further off the beaten path, but where bicycles are provided as part of the rental agreement. In that case, you might be able to get off with something that's a bit more distant to public transport. What this means for you as a landlord is that you'll have to furnish the place and install appliances, laundry machine, oven or microwave, preferably both, and television and so forth, put in some kitchen utensils and linen, and sign up for a contract with an internet service provider. Once you've done that, you simply hire a monthly mansion property manager. Most of your standard property managers will be happy to provide this service as well, and they would only charge you um, if and when the property is tenanted, and off you go. Really, the only recurring expense beyond the standard building fees uh, that you may be paying with the standard tenancies is the internet connection, which you will have to pay for monthly, even if you don't actually have a tenant in the property. But you can be creative with that one too by making it, for example, a mobile internet router, which gives you the option to offer mobile internet to your guests who can then take it with them on the road or to move it around between properties. If for some reason you decide to stop offering the monthly mansion service in one property, trial it in another, you just move the internet connection there. The same goes for furniture and appliances. If you've got more than one property, you can move stuff around. You can experiment with different setups and different properties and so forth. So really a bit more hands-on than your standard long-term leasing because even if you've got a good property manager that handles the advertising, the inquiries, check-ins, check-outs, cleaning, etc., you still need to review more frequent reports you still need to constantly monitor occupancy and performance, fine-tune, and there will be more maintenance and repair issues to attend to as well. But you do stand to make far higher profits. The only caveat is, depending on location and especially in areas that cater more to tourists, it may be seasonal profits. So not as stable or as reliable as the standard long-term leases where the same amount comes in regularly every month unless there's some sort of emergency. So yes, this is the current status of Japan's short-term stay scene, and this isn't likely to change in the near future. Or as Rethink Tokyo, the country's top real estate online magazine puts it, the future of Airbnb in Japan is cloudy with a strong chance of bureaucracy. Okay, so the next popular episode and topic we've discussed was Tokyo, and more specifically the Tokyo affordability paradox, in which we try to explain how it is that Tokyo is simultaneously considered one of the world's most expensive places to live, while at the same time is consistently ranked as one of the best places to live. Crazy expensive or reasonable and comfortable, which is it and why? Here's that episode. The first and most straightforward reason is that a large part of Tokyo's crazy expensive reputation is really a thing of the past, left over from the 80s when the city and the rest of Japan as well was indeed insanely expensive. However, as we've covered here in the past, those days are long gone. Japan's last big economic bubble burst in the early 90s, and since then, all the way up until late 2012, Prices of everything from cost of goods and foods and properties, cost of living generally, have all been sliding down, with property specifically more than halved during that period. Now, it is true that central Tokyo property prices have seen a revival between 2012 to 16, and they are now almost at that 90s peak again, but A, that's only the most central and heavily populated areas of the city, and B, 
these prices are now not nearly as expensive for those residing overseas, since the rest of the world has moved on. Inflation and cost of living have kicked in and brought prices and salaries at least slightly up in the rest of the developed world. So those Tokyo prices aren't nearly as bad as they seemed back in the 80s, or at least for those of us residing overseas. Now, another reason for this stigma of uh, one of the world's most expensive cities is that a lot of the industry publications which rate the price of global property and tend to include Tokyo in its top five or ten priciest cities regularly don't actually take into account the serious lack of space and the average size of Japanese apartments, which is quite different to many other cities in the world. So to be comparing apples with apples, we need to look at what it is that we're actually comparing here. Japan, as we've mentioned here before, is increasingly turning into a single society, with far more singles than couples or families renting apartments in the country's major cities these days. And the typical Japanese apartment, which is where most of these people live, is a lot smaller than a typical apartment anywhere else in the world, aside from maybe Hong Kong and a few other cities where space is also, also a highly expensive commodity. So if we're going to compare places that are 200 or 300 square meters, yes, Tokyo is very expensive, most definitely. But a 100 or 200 square meter apartment in, say, Sydney or New York is not such a rare thing. In Tokyo, though, it's exceptionally rare and it's very upmarkety, so it's priced accordingly. The vast majority of singles and couples as well actually live in apartments that are somewhere between 20 to 60 square meters in most large cities in Japan and definitely in Tokyo. So if you actually compare these types of spaces with their counterparts in other major cities around the world, you'll find there's a huge difference in price since the price graph shoots up very dramatically once you're talking about properties that are larger than say 70 or 80 square meters or if the layout is larger than two bedrooms in a living area. So again, if you're counting in price per square meter or square foot, yes, the average in Tokyo can be quite expensive since space is strictly limited and population density is very, very high. But the Japanese are experts at making the most of smaller spaces and they're absolute wizards when it comes to space utilization, um, compartmental practical interior design like um, sliding and rearrangeable doors and even walls and retractable furniture that can be tucked away into alcoves and panels, minimalist furnishings, super functional multi-purpose rooms and so forth, which means that a Japanese studio or one bedroom unit that's modernly built in say 45 square meters in size actually feels and looks a lot larger and more comfortable when compared with the same living space anywhere else. Another reason for this difference is that the Japanese are obsessed with new and modern, latest and greatest in all things, and homes are definitely included in that. If you'll recall, we've spoken about building standards and materials here, and how things are generally not built to last uh, as long as they are in other countries. For this reason as well, prices tend to uh, trend down very sharply after any structure reaches about 15 years of age. Rental prices, incidentally, also trend down as the property gets older, but not nearly as sharply. So again, if you're comparing large brand new residencies, yes, Tokyo is up there with most of the world's most expensive cities. But as soon as you look at smaller, older properties, things change drastically and it's quite a different picture. So 
to sum things up and give you an idea, here are some examples which will help hammer the point home. First, let's look at a 16 square meters studio unit in Edogawa, that's in the eastern suburbs of Tokyo. 15 minutes by train to the city center, so quite convenient. 16 meters may sound small, but it's actually quite normal for a Japanese studio apartment. So suburban, small, relatively old, priced at about 5.5 million Japanese yen. That's just around 50,000 US dollar. Hardly expensive, is it? Now, if you are to renovate this place up to the latest and greatest modern design standards, including everything we've discussed earlier as far as minimalist furnishing, compartmentalizing goes, you'd be adding, say, twenty dollars or $30,000 to this price tag at best. Rent? Well, you'd be renting this unit as is before any renovation at only 50,000 Japanese yen. That's about 450 US dollars per month, not per week, per month. So very, very affordable. If we look at a newer, bigger structure, though, let's say an entire building in Tokyo's western suburb of Suginami. Again, only about 15 minutes by train to the city center. But this building is just one year old with nine units of various sizes from studios that start at about 20 to 30 square meters and all the way up to three bedroom apartment of about 90 square meters built on 127 square meter of land and totaling about 250 cubic meters all up in structure. Well, this one's priced at 220 million Japanese yen, which is approximately 2 million US dollars. Now that comes up to an average of about 220,000 US dollars per unit on average, which is more than what you'd expect from a city like Tokyo. Not as bad as central properties, since this is still the suburbs, but definitely not cheap. Average of about $32 per cubic meter. Now, these units are very different to that smaller, older studio we were looking at just before. They're spacious, they're full of lights, and they're already up to the latest building and design standard. Hence this huge difference. Now, rent-wise as well, the average rent for these units is about $900 US per month. So again higher than the smaller, older units, but not nearly the three or four times difference we've seen in purchase price. If you look at houses, the differences become even more evident. So now you're talking about owning your own private bit of land. You're using a lot of space, which again is in high demand in Tokyo. The larger and newer the property, the more you'll be spending. So brand new residences just built, while not the most expensive in the world, are definitely on par with New York, London, or Sydney, suburban homes will start from 220 to 350,000 US dollars, and they're quite small compared with international standards. Um, central properties will start at about half a mil, and of course, the sky is the limit. So, to summarize, yes, Tokyo can be expensive, but can also be very affordable. It's really a matter of what you're buying. For investment purposes, though, one thing is true in all cases. Monthly rental yields are, percentage-wise, the lowest in Japan. The city has huge international appeal, and prices shoot up whenever the economy does even remotely well, due to its reputation as one of the world's most livable cities, global tourism and business hotspots. So just be aware, if you are buying in Tokyo, yes, 2012 to 2016 were good for speculators, 
but we're still talking about Japan, where economic growth is always tampered with caution due to the fast decreasing population and the huge debt to GDP ratio. So speculating on Tokyo properties with low rental yields is still very much a gamble. You may be better placed to consider other cities, as we've discussed here, and we'll continue to discuss in future episodes as well. There you go. So that probably sheds a bit more light on Tokyo for anyone interested. Now, speaking of Tokyo, our next popular episode was an interview with one of Tokyo's more prominent expats, Mr. Jason Ball of the Business in Japan web portal and LinkedIn group, which is Japan's biggest English language networking community with now over 50,000 members. Now, Jason is often the go-to person for foreigners who are trying to enter the Japanese job or business market, and our conversation with him was packed full of super valuable insights for anyone living, working, or more importantly, trying to live and work here in Japan, regardless of your particular field of expertise. Here's that interview. Enjoy. What are the most typical questions or requests that you get approached with most often, and what are the answers that you find yourselves giving typically? Tokyo community is a connector of people for business and work. Unsurprisingly, the most common request that I get um, is to help someone either sell a product uh, or service in Japan, get a job, or find an employee. So the majority of approaches are from foreigners and usually from outside Japan. So to someone wanting to enter the Japanese market, make sales in, with, or from Japan on uh, what's commonly called a success basis or commission only. I usually start with gently informing people that this model may work in some rare cases, usually where a relationship exists between the person who will invest their time and skills and network and, and the company wanting the sales. But for most part, that model's not common here. People with the ability to do that are unlikely to do it on a commission basis for someone they don't know and trust. And frankly, they've got more immediate opportunities to spend their limited time on. Mm. Contingent recruitment um, is commission only, so it's a possible exception for some. Um, but a, a company with multiple hires required that are willing to use a recruitment firm for they can expect to pay about 30 to 35% of on-target earnings as a fee. So if they're not looking for multiple hires, just, just looking for one, and it's not someone very senior like a country manager, they might have trouble finding takers and uh, getting their recruitment prioritised with any firm that says they will help them. But outside of recruitment, the advice for success is basically have a budget, be serious, have a plan to visit when necessary and possible and hire or contract people with local knowledge to work for you. If you aren't ready but want to test the market, just uh, pay for a simple, simple market feasibility study or engage someone to uh, test the, the waters for you. And uh, finding an expert in your industry here in Japan to talk to, paying if necessary to get in touch with someone is, is another option. And for those wanting to find work here, usually um, they're not bilingual. And for those outside the country, most have no visa allowing them to work. 
unless they're married to a Japanese or something like that. And my advice to them is usually based on the fact um, the type of work available to non-Japanese speakers is limited to a few industries and areas in those industries. So huge categories of work um, that some people think might be open to them are not. For example, unskilled work like working in a bar or construction, um, not the sort of work, not yet at least, that uh, you could get a visa uh, sponsorship for and approval for. And uh, in something like construction, for example, not speaking Japanese is going to mean there's not uh, very many roles here at all anyway. And government work, civil civil work, um, a huge amount of the service industry and, and office work, that sort of, uh, sort of blue-collar work, this, those sorts of roles are simply not open to Japanese, uh, non-Japanese-speaking foreigners. Right. And if you're native English-speaking, of course, the fastest route to get here is English teaching. The largest uh, employer of English teachers from outside Japan is currently a company called Interac, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently they've got a low salary and... and uh, it's unlikely you get a post uh, in Tokyo or Osaka, but they pay enough to, to live on and get yourself established, arguably. <laughs> and if you're not English-speaking, then coming here with a, a strong plan of what you're capable of or uh, to meet some, some people and investigate some avenues of um, how you're going to meet more is, is a must, really because it's the people you know and the people that they know that might be able to find you an opportunity. Through the front door, which uh, is recruiters, job boards, um, uh, ads, job ads, um, HR and company website applications, they're not likely to lead to a job from outside the country unless your skills or experience are unusually different, rare, a company um, that uses uh, and people that use this method are looking for ideal candidates and non-Japanese speaking foreigner is always going to be a compromise at best. Something these channels um, don't really exist for. Mm-hmm. Recruiters especially uh, are not there to find people jobs so much as they are to work to find ideal candidates to match job descriptions, usually unrealistic ones, <laughs> for companies <laughs> paying a, a, th- a third or more of the, the hires annual salary. Right. That's um, excellent advice for anyone looking for a job. And what do you find in your experience that it takes to be successful in the Japanese business environment? Aside from sales and the penetration that we've discussed, the characteristics of a successful business person working within or with Japan and are those characteristics um, linked at all um, to those required to personally integrate into society here? Um, Well, I guess you need a a genuine like or interest in Japan, the culture and the people, the market in general and you need a product or service that's either already clearly famous uh, and successful on a global scale 
or you're connected already to a Japanese or foreign old hand here who's well experienced in your target market or industry um, to represent you and they can uh, take what you have and place it with exactly the right distributor or with a lot of money behind you or behind them into exactly the right B2C consumer market maybe. Mm. Either that or you need a budget, time, tenacity, patience, a network, strong relationships and be trusted or build that trust. Mm. The passion and energy to push through, to make presentations, make sales, deliver great during and after sales support um, and service until you reach the what you're looking for, the success you're looking for. Um, another uh, assumption or related assumption or mistake is underestimating how long the sales and decision-making process is in, in Japan. Mm. B2B, um, depending on the product or service you have and the size of the client, there isn't one decision-maker. The importance of the decision-maker in the Western sense needs to be spread over a wide set of important players and companies. And if people are interested and, and lucky, they, they can hire sales trainers to teach some of this, or at least that's what I've heard. Right, that's excellent advice. Thank you. And just to tie into the current state of affairs, both here and globally, what are the unique challenges that you see facing Japan these days, um, particularly as far as the international business arena is concerned? Um, maybe because of its proud um, homogeny as a society, it's inward, in some cases, insular domestic market only focus. Some of Japan, a reasonable percentage of people in business with influence, seem to have little or no idea how to engage internationally, to understand the international opportunity and have uh, a real limited ability to put themselves in the shoes of a foreign person, country or business market. This probably still drives part of the lingering domestic market focus here. Uh, in some industries and, and companies today. Mm. In the boom times, um, same sort of culture worked in Japan's favour, building you know, what the world wanted and didn't even know they wanted mm. and at a price that matched the, the draw of the quality they became well known for. It's, it's understood here generally that a lot of leaders in Japan are older men, seemingly incapable of letting go of that era. <laughs> Quite content to wait out until their retirement without too much change and with as little risk as possible. And um, what we're seeing in the news and the number or volume of scandals is, is uh, shows just how long some pretty well-known companies have been trying to hide what they've been doing just to try to keep the dream of yesteryear alive. Yeah, absolutely, or what they haven't been doing. Is this, exactly. um, 
Is this different now compared to how you remember things when you first came here? Have you seen Japan changing at all over the course of that time? I mean, at least as far as openness, uh, communication with foreigners or the outside world is concerned? Oh, absolutely. Uh, first, the change has always been the tourism industry. When I arrived in Japan in 2003, there was still a faint remainder of the boom years of American and Western society loving Japan for uh, the same way it was stereotypically known for a while. Yeah. Um, and Japanese in the tourist uh, business, tourism business then would pretty easily tell me how they'd love to get more tourists, you know, Americans, Australians, Canadians, Europeans, when you asked uh, about the Reality of statistics, though, the numbers of Chinese, Korean, Korean <laughs> tourists, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, they weren't really that keen to, to even discuss that sort of thing. They mm. mumble something, change the subject. But these days, anyone serious in business that's impacted by inbound tourism knows exactly where the money's coming from and has tailored their business to that market. Right. And in that sense, then, Japan, in larger cities at least, has changed dramatically and it's far more open than they were just five or six years ago. And the Rugby World Cup coming up next year and the 2020 Olympics the year after that means the drive to acceptance and more openness is it's not slowing down yet. It's pushing deeper into any prefecture with a draw for tourists. Mm. You've know, been feeling that um, in the real estate industry as well, especially as far as um, Tokyo or Osaka are concerned. Okay, great stuff. Thank you. And just to wrap things up, where do you see opportunity for foreign companies and business people in the near to medium future? Um, let's talk industries, technologies or fields of expertise, um, areas of investment, things that are taking off or might be taking off here in, in coming years. Well, Japan's a consumer market, so if, if you've got a product that's successful in other large markets, uh, with the right partner, distributor and strategy, there's no reason it can't be successful here. Of course, there are some industries and areas which I'm noticing a lot of activity in, uh, and in relation to Japan, areas like cryptocurrency and ICOs and tokens and exchanges blockchain, fintech, that sort of stuff, but also real estate and property investment mm. like you're in. Um, pharma and medical devices is a deregulating market here. In the casino or integrated resort business. Yeah, that's coming soon, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah, so. that's great, Jason. Thank you. A lot of stuff for people to really dig into there. Um, really appreciate your time and insights. Thanks for being with that's us today. It. So that's probably a very good start for anyone interested in doing any kind of business here in Japan. Now from business to pleasure, our next popular episode discussed holiday properties and more specifically ski properties. By the way, before we get right into it, you should probably know that this time of year towards the end of spring is the best season to get out there and look at properties in winter resort locations, simply because the snows have just melted in most of these areas and realtors can now take you around and show you properties that may have been difficult to access in the colder months. So drop us a line if this sort of thing interests you and we'll organize some viewings and tours for you. 
Here's our episode discussing why, how, and where to purchase the perfect holiday home in some of Japan's fabulous winter wonderland spots. If you're, say, a couple, come here for even just two weeks a year, you're probably looking at paying over 2,000 US for accommodation. And if you add just one extra family member or an extra week a year, it already becomes more cost effective to own your own holiday property here. Even more so if you've got a larger family or if you go on holidays with other ski enthusiasts, you could definitely cut your annual holiday costs by half or more by owning your own property here. Not to mention that if the resort is popular, it may be booked out exactly when you've got your your heart set on coming. And maybe most importantly, just having your own very own home away from home gives you the opportunity to deck it out nicely, renovate it, etc. to your heart's desire as opposed to standard hotel or resort decor and convenience, which may not be exactly your cup of tea. The sky is the limit, of course, and if you look up uh, Japanese luxury uh, ski chalet or chalets, as our US-based or Australian friends would call them, you'll find luxurious mountain cabins with environmental controls, lightning and spa controls, all automated, accessible remotely via smartphones or tablets, architectural palaces, and so forth. But for those among us who aren't too keen on forking out millions of dollars for a place that they only use once or twice a year, there are some very affordable options out there as well. And that's what we're going to focus on here today. So first, maybe where to buy? Well, as close to your favorite resort um, is probably the obvious answer. But since the bigger and more famous resorts can be more expensive than you'd care for, it might be a good idea to familiarize yourself a little bit with some of the less internationally famous ones. Again, Snow Japan, great website for that. These resorts would have less English language services or less English fluent staff running around and you want to make sure that they've got the right number and types of courses and activities for the right ages in your group. But with a bit of research and an open mind, you can find some gorgeous hidden gems that might be perfect and very affordable for your purposes. So price-wise, what are we talking about? Generally speaking, places that are very close to the slopes are normally in the bigger, fully serviced hotel-type apartment buildings, and these carry substantial monthly management and maintenance fees. On the upside, there are many older Japanese and foreign families that are no longer using their properties there, and they're practically giving them away for a song just so that they can stop paying those monthly fees. So we've had clients purchase very reasonably comfortable older apartments in and around those places for as little as three, four, or five thousand US dollars. In those cases, your due diligence would mainly consist of finding out what exactly the monthly fees are. These can be anywhere from about five to thirty thousand Japanese yen per month, so about forty and anywhere up to two hundred and fifty US dollars or so in most cases which again can be quite cost-effective if your average yearly accommodation on your holiday normally costs you two, three, or four thousand dollars a year. But you'd also want to carefully review the building's reserve fund pool status, the renovation repair history, just as you would in the case of any condo unit that you're purchasing, to make sure that there's not a high risk of those fees suddenly going up too much or too fast over the next five or ten years. There have also been more than a few cases of mismanagement and even uh, embezzlement in one or two cases by resort management firms. So due diligence is really important here. Do your research again or hire a buyer's agent services to do it for you. 
other properties that are not condo resort units can cost a bit more, say, 10, 20, or even a few hundred thousand dollars in case you want to own your own little villa or, or cabin home with a plot of freehold land. But those properties on the upside carry close to zero monthly fees, so well worth the expense over a longer period of time. It's really a matter of taste. Another important factor to consider is, of course, the distance to the slopes. So the pricier maintenance resort type properties, again, will often be very close to the courses. And as the resort service level goes down and the monthly fees decline, they tend to be a bit further away. But they'll often be right next to a shuttle bus or ski lift stop, which takes you right there. And unit owners in those resorts normally get heavily discounted or even free use of both the shuttle buses or the ski lifts. Also heavily discounted or free usage of the facilities, so the onsen, hot springs, the heated swimming pools, tennis courts, equipment rentals, etc. Look into it when you're inquiring about any particular property because that's also a large part of the expense that you'll be up for um, and will be saving on if you end up buying your own place. Now, many of you will probably assume that you can rent out your property to other guests when you're not using it. And there definitely are a lot of owners out there who have been and are doing that. But you want to bear in mind that in the case of managed resorts, this is normally forbidden. And with the latest anti-short-term stay legislation that passed in Japan in June this year, or the anti-Airbnb laws, as they're usually referred to, you may be facing some serious consequences. There have already been more than a few foreigners arrested and deported around the country for running afoul of these laws. So it's really best to consider your purchase a lifestyle choice rather than a money-making scheme, unless you own the entire structure, of course, in which case you've got a lot more freedom to do with it as you please. When you are in attendance, though, you'll normally be able to bring um, whoever you want with you to stay. Just check again ahead of the purchase because some of the resorts actually charge a small daily fee for any extra guests beyond the immediate registered family. Okay, so let's say you found a cheap old property and you now want to furnish and renovate it, um, which is obviously a big part of owning your own dream holiday uh, home away from home type of place. If you're a DIY enthusiast or you're living in Japan and you've got the time and the language skills to research and manage your renovation and furnishing on your own, excellent. If not, you'll obviously need someone to do this for you. Some of the more internationally renowned sites like uh, Niseko or Hakuba will have some local expats who can provide these services in English, but they'll often be on the slightly more expensive side just due to the nature of the place and the clientele. So if you're in any other location or you just don't want to pay as much, it's a good idea to hire a management company which can facilitate those services at more affordable prices and lower entry levels. You will need to research, get some quotes from local Japanese companies, ask them to send you pictures of potential furniture, appliance model numbers, type of flooring, wallpaper that they usually use, etc. So you'll need to be a bit of a project manager for a while and also to coordinate with resort management because they'll need to be informed of the days and times in which the renovation professionals and delivery people are going to be coming in. And that will not be allowed at any time of the day and night, of course, so it needs to be uh, scheduled with them in advance and according to their instructions. Again, bear in mind that typical Japanese service providers will not be able to communicate in English. They will not be able to receive or send funds overseas, etc. So a buyer's agent or portfolio manager is probably your best choice if you're not a resident. That would simply simplify things as far as insurance, property, purchase tax payments, etc. go as well. 
and most importantly make the entire process a bit easier and with less room for costly mistakes. Okie doke, we're almost done, but before we get into our 2018 summary and the 2019 projections episode, which will be the last one for this compilation, here's one more super popular episode, our second interview with Mr. Dan Vovel of Odyssey Capital Group in Hong Kong, whose extra popular Japanese boutique hospitality fund has taken off hugely. We partnered with Odyssey to offer our listeners some exclusive benefits, such as more affordable participation buy-ins and reduced fees. And this offer is still available, by the way, so don't hesitate to contact us or Odyssey directly and just make sure to let them know you're referred by NTI or by this podcast uh, so that you can enjoy those perks. Here's our interview with Dan. So could you give us a quick rundown again for those who might have missed the uh, previous interview we've had with you here? What exactly is this fund that you've set up and what does it aim to do for investors? Well, Japan is being rediscovered by both international investors and tourists, and there are long-term structural changes occurring that will drive the favourable fundamentals of high demand and inefficient supply for hospitality services over the long term. We've seen a massive spike in supply of business hotels and limited service hotels, and we knew we needed to focus elsewhere, instead on the boutique luxury hospitality segment. This segment is actively sought by a more affluent hospitality customer who seeks high-quality luxury and, more importantly, a unique and personalised experience. And we're seeing real supply shortages over the next few years. And so we've created a fund that is able to capitalise upon these tremendous fundamentals of the Japanese real estate and hospitality market. And we've named it the Odyssey Japan Boutique Hospitality Fund, which I guess gives you the idea of what it does. Um, So our core fund strategy is to acquire renovate, reposition, and operate. And particularly for niche repositioned assets into boutique luxury hospitality assets, which embody the beauty and refinement of traditional Japanese design. And best of all, on the numbers, our clients can expect a semi-annual preferred dividend payment of around 8% per annum and a targeted return on investment of around north of 15% per annum. Okay, and if back in October we were just talking about potential and general business projections, now things are actually already in motion, aren't they? Could you give, yes, us, they are. give us a quick update on how the seating is going first, how much have you recruited and from who and where? Well, for our Japan strategy, we've been receiving a tremendous amount of interest, particularly from large institutions. Um, today we're currently finalizing assets for tranche two of a multi-tranche USD $200 million mandate with one of the largest Korean institutions. And we've also signed agreements with three other institutions for mandates between 30 to $100 million per institution. Uh, as our focus has been on these larger mandates, however, we've had less time for capital raising for the main fund. It, it's been moving ahead steadily, and for the main fund, we're looking at at least uh, 15 to $20 million by the end of uh, this month. Okay, wow, fantastic. So you've had quite a positive response. Looks like people um, and even more so larger institutional type investors um, have definitely warmed up to the idea quite nicely. And you've already gone out and purchased some properties to start off, um, I take it. Could you tell us a bit more about the properties that the fund's already gone ahead and bought? Sure. Uh, Well, last year, at the end of October, we acquired a boutique hotel in Kyoto called Hotel Owan on behalf of our institutional client in Korea. 
the property has been renamed Hotel Owan Hanami, and there's a website that we can share perhaps after this podcast for anyone that's interested to, to visit. Um, it's a popular choice for Asian and Western families visiting Kyoto, due mainly to the fact that it offers large rooms, uh, superb de- design concepts combining Japanese and contemporary design motifs, and it's very easy access to most of the major tourism destinations in Kyoto. Um, previously in August uh, last year, we also acquired the first Ryokan, which is a traditional Japanese-style hot spring hotel. This was for our main fund, and it was called Kagetsu. We are particularly keen on the Ryokan sector within the Japanese hospitality market, as we feel it is undervalued, fragmented, and there is tremendous opportunity to apply a value-add investment approach to well-selected assets. And our investment team's ability to identify undervalued hospitality assets where we can actively improve the property and operations is already bearing fruit in these two acquisitions. Okay, brilliant. Good stuff. Can I just advise on the uh, Ryokans when you're buying them? It would really be an um, innovative change if you could just supply um, your visiting tourists with gaijin foreigner-sized um, slippers. We always find it really difficult to fit our little uh, big feet into those tiny little slippers at the onsen. Good point. I'll, I'll take that on board. <laughs> and uh, what, what's next on the list as far as investment funds and potential properties are concerned? Where to from here? Well, in addition to acquiring these two properties and the beginning of this value creation process when we've acquired the properties, the Japanese investment team has been very busy building the pipeline of investable assets for 2019. With on-site due diligence occurring um, almost on a weekly basis throughout Japan, we have identified attractive boutique hospitality assets and importantly at attractive prices. As we kick off the new year, uh, 2019, We now have a pipeline of over 52 potential assets which are under various stages of due diligence by our team. Yeah. The, first, the first quarter of 2019 is going to be a really busy one uh, as we ramp up the acquisition process and uh, as we bring on more mandates into our fund. At a minimum, we anticipate acquiring and closing at least four assets before the end of March. Um, while we can't disclose all the assets at this point in time, uh, one of the acquisitions we are most excited about is a project we call Project Falcon, which is an acquisition of 24 machiyas in Kyoto. And if anyone of uh, the viewers don't know what a machiyar is, it's, it's kind of like a shop house or a tea house um, made out of wood and, and uh, very old-fashioned uh, and traditional in, in style. What we'll be doing with these 24 machiyas is transforming the, transforming the entire street into an urban luxury machiya resort. Uh, we've been working on a project for eight months and we are scheduled to close and become the majority equity owner of this project uh, at the end of this month. So we're very excited. Um, we will also be acquiring a larger boutique hotel in Tokyo for an institutional partner and a number of ryokans within the Japanese boutique hospitality front. So there's indeed a lot happening. Wow, that sounds... Brilliant. And again, you, you mentioned returns of um, most likely between 8% to 15%? Yes, correct. As mentioned before, uh, our clients can expect a semi-annual preferred dividend payment of 8% um, per annum and a targeted levered return on investment of 15% net of all fees and charges. 
Uh, we're ensuring that every asset that we acquire into the portfolio has to generate at least a cash-on-cash cash return of at least 10% and net returns on equity of at least 15% um, per annum over the term of the, of, of the, um, of the portfolio project. Oh, excellent. That sounds great for any investor, regardless of uh, what the rest of their portfolio looks like. And folks, let us just remind you that anyone listening uh, who will be contacting Odyssey and mentioning that they've heard about the fund here via NTI's uh, Japan Real Estate Investment Podcast is entitled to two bonuses. Uh, one is the waiving of all uh, entry and exit fees. And secondly, a reduced minimum investment buy-in of just $50,000 US dollars, as opposed to the normal $250,000 minimum, I think. Isn't that right, Dan? Yes, that's correct. Um, we wanted to give your viewers uh, as, as many people as possible uh, the chance to be involved in this one-of-a-kind of, one opportunity that combines great returns with one of the sexiest products I've personally seen today. It is. Finally, before we sign off, here's our episode that ties it all together. Once a year, as mentioned, we like to turn to the Oracles, the biggest international real estate, financial and investment experts who have anything to do with Asia generally and Japan specifically, and see what the past year has done for our market and equally important, what they believe the coming year will bring. So here's our 2018-19 Japan real estate property market annual summary episode. Enjoy. Now, Japan naturally is drawing a lot of attention in this region, simply because of all the countries in the Asia-Pacific region, it's actually the only one that still hasn't imposed any restrictions on foreign property ownership. And in a market that's completely freehold, not including a handful of historical areas or properties within them. Not only that, but Japan transactions are also always fully documented. The business environment is fully investor-oriented, in the sense that the regime is stable, legal recourse is a given, rental yield is relatively high, barring some overheated spots like central Tokyo, Osaka, and so forth. Now, this high demand doesn't necessarily mean that there are enough deals out there to supply it. In fact, plenty of local asset owners are sitting tight, holding onto their assets, and not really in any rush to sell, mainly due to a lack of better deals to invest their funds in. But the demand is certainly there. European and North American institutional investors uh, have continued to buy heavily into the country in 2018, with the U.S. specifically investing over $4.2 billion in Japan in 2018 and not showing any signs of cooling interest. China as well is looking set to increase their investments here this year uh, as they direct commercial investments and companies away from the U.S. in light of the trade wars and all the political grandstanding that's currently raging between the two countries. And the fact that prices have stopped rising in Japan is actually a boon in this respect because yields aren't being compressed as they have been up until 2017 or so. So on that prices front, things have been basically stagnant throughout the country, just slight increases in Tokyo and Osaka. And this is likely to remain the case until 2020 at least, according to JREI, Japan's Real Estate Institute, which forecasts only slight price hikes until then, and only in larger condo blocks of three floors and upwards, reinforced concrete, or maybe some of the larger steel frame buildings. Certainly no price hikes anticipated in anything smaller and older than that. As we've mentioned here in past episodes, Tokyo prices specifically are now almost at their 1990s pre-bubble peak, which puts a psychological damper on the potential for further hikes. 
And that continues to push capital to other parts of the country, cities like Osaka, Yokohama, Fukuoka, and Nagoya. How about rents? Well, commercial rents on the industrial and retail front are stagnant or dropping, including super central spots in central Tokyo itself. But office and residential rents, which are the big surprise of 2018, have actually gone up. 3 to 7% in Tokyo, which was supposed to remain flat in 2018, according to last year's projections. And rents are now forecast to rise another 3% or so next year in Tokyo, over 4% in Nagoya, and up to 7, 8, 9, 10, or even 11% in Fukuoka, Sapporo, and Osaka. This is mainly because, for one, wages have gone up, finally, and even with all the new developments going on all over the country, occupancy is very, very high. As smaller towns continue to die out with a population decline, and more and more of those towns' residents continue to move into the bigger cities. Now, this isn't the case only for residential and office tenants, but for hotels as well. As inbound tourism continues to rise, Tokyo hotel occupancy is already at 80% on average, and this is before the 2019 Rugby Cup and the 2020 Olympics. The rest of the country hotels are on 70% occupancy on average, and there reportedly are only going to be about 6,000 new hotel rooms entering the market this year. So vacancies are not likely to increase much. The more traditional inns and resorts, though, are not doing nearly as well, under 50% occupancy on average throughout the year. And that is most likely due to both the seasonal aspect of some of the more rural of these properties, but also because, unfortunately, they're still severely lacking in their ability to cater to foreign visitors, something that savvy investors like Odyssey Capital, whose president we've interviewed here a couple of episodes already, and even smaller companies like ourselves and our clients are quick to capitalize on by aiming to provide a more internationally aware service in some of these smaller rural guest houses, uh, yokans, traditional Japanese inns, and so forth. So as far as the hotel market is concerned, Tokyo itself is probably already peaking and a little bit too hot for comfort, but the rest of the country's hospitality segment is still highlighted as very good investment potential with increasingly healthy returns, particularly with the up-and-coming casino legislation, which is going to send the number of tourists to even higher historical peaks. Nagoya, next big town on our list, already one of Japan's main industrial and commercial hubs, and now getting to be first to participate in the rollout of the brand new super speed bullet train infrastructure, the Maglev Floating Magnetic Train. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's true. And Nagoya is also doing phenomenally well, over 75% occupancy for office properties, general occupancy, the highest they've been uh, since 1993 or so, and grade A office space, in particular, the highest it's ever been in Nagoya, 99.4% occupancy on average for grade A office spaces. Now, there are going to be a lot of existing office tenants who are going to relocate in 2019 as well, since the older properties along that new train line are scheduled to be demolished, and that's probably going to bring rents for offices up another 25 3% or so, according to CBRE at least, and occupancy even higher. Now, this lack of vacancies and available assets for purchase, along with the increased focus on higher yields, is also leading investors to become more and more creative. And many of them are now tearing down or converting older buildings into newer, fancier, 
higher yielding type constructions. So we're seeing C-grade blocks in suburban locations being converted into B-grade buildings. We're seeing shoddy old hotels converted into share houses, especially in the universities, and traditional office blocks being converted into shared office spaces. That's sort of creative, uh, creative uh, investing. Now, another thing we discussed here in last year's summary is e-commerce. So this particular market segment continues to be red hot. More developers and operators are now adopting the strategy, which was considered experimental, if you'll recall, just last year, of cleaning up chemically contaminated land near the larger cities, as well as moving from large-scale distribution and shipping centers, which used to be on the outskirts of the cities, now moving into smaller central city facilities that are built to suit a particular purpose. Now, this last strategy only works for businesses that plan to be around for some time, obviously, and a lot of them are feeling more than confident that this will be the case. In fact, it's widely believed that even an economic downturn or mild recession isn't likely to reduce the appetite for online shopping, considering how quickly these online services are expended. So investment in logistics facilities is still considered to be very reliable, very stable, actually to the point where many developers are now more than happy to build these types of facilities, even without any pre-commitment to leases from potential tenants. They simply know that they will most definitely be able to easily rent them out once they're built. So who's not doing that great? Well, as we've mentioned at the start of this episode, the biggest loser in this market is the traditional brick-and-mortar retail sector, shops. So exactly what everyone was predicting last year in this regard is actually taking place. Major brands are focusing on only the most high-end streets like Ginza or Omotesando in Tokyo, and the less central shopping centers and malls are being abandoned by the wayside as a result simply because they're seen as risky prospects in a nation that's obsessed with online shopping. Salaries, as we've mentioned, and tourist numbers have grown, for sure, but they're just not enough to save the sector. And with a hike in consumption tax also scheduled later this year, things are looking pretty shaky for brick-and-mortar shops, except, again, basic necessities that simply are not popular in online shops, like fresh foods, dried goods, and other edibles. The only other sector probably worth mentioning here is assisted living for seniors. With Japan's rapidly aging population, these long-term accommodation for the elderly are also doing extremely well. And again, this is forecasted to continue to be the case in coming years as well. And that was it. Our first ever Japan real estate podcast compilation. The clock on the wall shows me that we're just under two hours. Hope you made it this far. If you did, then this content is obviously of interest to you. So we'd really appreciate your comments, your questions, etc. on whatever platform you may have found us. And we'd appreciate it even more if you could share this content with your networks or anyone who may find it interesting. And better yet, leave us a review or at least a star rating on the iTunes Store podcast repository. As one of my favorite speakers, Gary Vaynerchuk, likes to say, your word of mouth is our oxygen. And that's entirely true in our case as well. Hope to have you with us next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, we wish you, as always, happy investing.